For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk to actor Richard Thomas about starring in a new adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird that's coming to Centennial Hall. After barely surviving the terrors of the Holocaust, Simon Wiesenthal made it his life's mission to track Nazi war criminals and help bring them to justice. I'll talk with actor and playwright Tom Dugan and Rabbi Stephanie Aaron to learn more as the Invisible Theater presents Wiesenthal this weekend. And I'll get to talk with Matthew Whitaker, a musical prodigy who is also blind. At age 21, Whitaker is bringing his quintet to be among the stars of the Tucson Jazz Festival. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Back when I was in sixth grade, I was assigned to read Harper Lee's classic book, To Kill a Mockingbird. And for some reason, I was not enthused. It didn't seem like something I would enjoy. Although I had weeks to take the book in, I delayed until the last day before the book report was due to read even one page. Disgruntled and annoyed, I opened up my paperback copy, and instantly I found myself transported to the fictional town of Maycomb, Alabama in 1933 and I was involved in a story about an adventurous sister and brother named Scout and Jim, and their friend Dill, as they struggled to make sense of the complicated world around them. I sympathized with them that grown-ups were strange, and the things that occupied them seemed inscrutable. But when the sibling's father, Atticus Finch, becomes the defense lawyer in the trial of Tom Robinson, a black man accused of a terrible crime, layers of understanding are revealed one by one. And at the cost of the children's innocence, but not their goodness, the world around them is brought into focus. I was up until the early hours of the next morning reading the last page, and I couldn't wait to share my thoughts on what I thought was the best book I had ever read. To Kill a Mockingbird has now been reimagined for the stage in a new play written by Aaron Sorkin. It's coming to Centennial Hall between January 17th and the 22nd, starring Richard Thomas as Atticus Finch. I had a chance to talk with Thomas about his portrayal. You probably remember him from TV with The Waltons, Roots, The Next Generation, and the miniseries version of Stephen King's It. This is not a YA book. This book is not written for young people. And it's a very interesting thing to uh, encounter the book. We read a lot of stuff in school way too early, you know. And it's good to be introduced to these things early. And the two things that are most vivid to young readers, I think, of the of the book are sharing this experience of childhood with Scout and Jam and what they're going through. Um, yeah. And how does that relate to me? And like, these are kids, and I'm, I'm a kid, and, and I understand what they're... And Dad is what Dad usually is. He's a sort of a, an authority figure and a wisdom figure, a teaching figure, a, but the other thing that is so critical in the first reading of the book is that most young people read this book. They're starting to form a sense of social consciousness, you know, and and, are, and are learning about their own 
sense of justice. And, uh, and there's nothing like, you know, a community of young people, uh, teenagers or precocious preteens, who begin to, you know, formulate their view of the world and what a community means. So, so obviously, when, when I'm reading that book as a young person, I become acutely aware of the of the injustice and all that, what's going on. But I'm also sharing, you know, the common fears about Boo Radley and about, then I read the book as an adult, you know, preparing for the play. And I thought, oh yeah, this is a whole other perspective. Then you, then you read the book as a parent and Atticus's task of, you know, raising these two kids um, along with Calpurnia, you know, um, is, is seen from a different perspective, a parent's perspective. And, and that makes, Atticus, a much more interesting person to me, to, to read him as an adult, hmm. um, uh, rather than as sort of the father figure in the, in the book. Um, but when I first read the book, Atticus was a very important sort of presiding figure, but my attention was equally divide, you know, taken up with, with the escapades of the young people. I mean, the thing yeah, to remember sure. in that book, you know, the trial of Tom Robinson takes up all of two chapters in that book. Yeah, yeah, but they're they're so vivid. I can remember the sights and smells that that uh, Harper Lee, you know, recorded to this day. A scene that always evokes an incredible reaction for me is when the mob is confronting Atticus on the porch of the jail, mm-hmm. and right. Scout and Jim wander into this scene very innocently, yet they end right. up with very few words diffusing this incredibly tense situation that is something right. that Atticus is unable to diffuse. He, he can't right. do that. So when I spoke to a young actress who performed in, a, in another version of this story, not the Aaron Sorkin play that you're performing, I asked her, what, what's your favorite scene as Scout? And she said, when I talk to Mr. Cunningham and I tell him to say, hey, so I, I just like a reflection from you as an actor performing in this play and doing this role as Atticus, and then also having to share the stage with these younger actors who are performing the very important parts of Scout and Jim. Oh, it's a terrific scene, and it's placed <clears throat> at the end of the first act. So it's a very good end of act one scene. It's, he's placed it perfectly in terms of the, the, the architecture of the play. I would take issue with the idea that the kids wander in uh, kind of by accident or innocently. They actually are coming because they don't want to be left out of anything. He tells them to stay home and they don't. Mm, yeah. So they're like, they're actually disobeying. This is Jim insisting on being, you know, being considered as a, as a, as a person with an opinion about all this stuff that's going on. This is the, you know, the conflict he's having with his father, uh, which is really focused beautifully in the play. They just want to get into it all. They wanted to get. They want to get into Boo Radley. They want to see what's going on. You know, they're kids. It's like, don't come. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to show up. They're going to come in. And, you know, hmm. so there, there's a there's a disobedience going on in the scene. Um, it's a very interesting scene for me because there's the scene of trying to keep Tom Robinson safe uh, and stand in the way of the mob, and then there's there's the scene of of a parent whose kids have gotten out of his control. And what's going to happen? And, oh, my God, you know, they shouldn't be here. And then watching how Scout's sort of um, unreflective and and innocent engagement with Mr. Cunningham diffuses the whole situation 
essentially Cunning, Mr. Cunningham is ashamed because mm-hmm. it's been revealed to everybody that he's that he's basically a charity case, and that you know, and he can't proceed because his debt to Atticus Finch has been revealed, right? So it's like, okay, I can't really do this right now because I do owe you and blah, blah. So it's a very interesting way in which the innocence of the child exposes uh, um, Cunningham. And as Atticus, I just watch, you know, as a parent. It's like, oh, they shouldn't have come, and I wanted them to leave, but they've actually, she's actually solved the problem. However, they still put themselves in a dangerous position and they shouldn't do that. The ambivalences of parenting are very present for me in that scene. Do you remember the story of the airplane pilot Sullenberger? Uh, in 2009, oh, sure. yeah, he landed the plane in the Hudson River. So something he said about that at that time has stuck in my mind and made me think about many different pursuits and occupations in life in light of this quote. And the quote was, Every day as an airline pilot, I was making a deposit in the bank of experience. On that day in 2009, I had to make a withdrawal. So in terms of acting, Richard Thomas, can you tell us something about the deposits that you've made in the bank over the years that you are now using to portray Atticus Finch? I think this is no different from anybody going to life, right? I mean, we, we practice our profession diligently. And I should say, you know, my my Actors' Equity Union card will be 65 years old next year. Um, <laughs> so I've just put one foot in front of the other as an actor and uh, accumulated experience by, you know, seeing what works and what doesn't work and also by paying attention to people, you know, colleagues, good qualities and learning from them. Um, and... Uh, Every every role has a certain set of challenges, and uh, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't equate any of it with trying to land a plane in the Hudson River or the East River, wherever it was. I mean, we are trying to we are trying to land that plane every night yeah. Um, yeah, in the right. course of the play, and in order to land the plane, you know, we have to call on our expertise, uh, some of which is second nature, and some of which. Uh, we have to draw on based on the moment at hand. If something is changes, if there's a, a, a cue, that, a lighting cue that's late, or if somebody is late for an entrance, or if one messes up a line, and then you have to mm-hmm. go, you know, all of these these things that happen during the, during the course of the performance, then <clears throat> we're kind of in free fall for a moment and figure out how to get the plane to sort of, you know, right itself. Um, we have this reverence for Atticus Finch as a figure of unassailable virtue, you know, the kind of model that nobody can ever quite live up to. I mean, if you're a child and you have a father like this, this is so idealized. It's like, well, how are you ever going to get to that? You know, we've put Atticus Finch on a kind of a pedestal, you know, and part of that is because in the novel and certainly in the movie, he's viewed that way from by the children and, and and then by the audience because he tries to do the right thing and all that. But I think the great achievement among many great achievements in this adaptation by Aaron Sorkin is that he's taken Atticus off the pedestal and he's interrogated all of his unassailable virtues and he's given him a journey which is comparable in some ways is parallel to the young people's loss of innocence. So that Atticus is actually a character in a play going through a particular set of challenges and having a, a you know, a, 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 and on a journey. And it makes it so much more fun to play. 
it also allows him to be more accessible to the audience because he's teachable, he's fallible. His point of view about how everybody is basically good is really interrogated, and his sense of what constitutes community is interrogated. So he's much more, I think, of a flesh-and-blood person in this play than in either of the other iterations, the original and, and in the film. And also one of the great gifts that Aaron has given all the actors who will play Atticus is a great sense of humor. It's a very funny play. He's a very witty writer, and there's there's great wit and great comedy in the play, as well as this sort of high seriousness of its social conscience. So, so these are things I just wanted to say. People are getting ready to come see the show. That uh, you know, I've been given, and the audience has been given an Atticus, who I hope will be much more like one of us. Richard Thomas stars in a new production of To Kill a Mockingbird, adapted for the stage by Aaron Sorkin. Broadway in Tucson presents the play January 17th through the 22nd at Centennial Hall. And BroadwayinTucson.com has the details. As Rabbi Stephanie Aaron told me, Holocaust survivor Simon Wiesenthal chose to become a crusader on behalf of not just the Jewish people, but on behalf of all innocent victims of the Nazi regime. Until his death at age 96 in 2005, Wiesenthal worked tirelessly to collect information on Nazi war criminals in order to see them brought to justice. This unique story serves as the core of Wiesenthal, a one-man play written and starring Tom Dugan, whom the Invisible Theater is presenting this weekend at the Berger Performing Arts Center. I spoke with Tom Dugan from his home in Los Angeles, and we were joined in the studio by Rabbi Stephanie Aaron in this interview. I think the most significant piece for me about his life is He went through the Holocaust between he and his wife, lost over 89 members of their families. And afterward, instead of just sort of trying to retrieve his former life, he was an architect, that he basically made the choice that he would become a person who would literally hunt Nazis. He would do that in order to just say to the world, these people are not punished. We have to have some kind of accountability but also, I think, to continue to let the story have a worldwide audience, as it were, because, of course, these Nazis were all over the place. He decided that he would be the voice of all the Jews who were murdered, but not just the Jews. And I think that is what really allows us to say, I want to be like him. I want to be the voice of someone who's oppressed. I don't want to just be someone who stands there and looks. I don't want to be just a bystander. I want to be an upstander. Based on what Rabbi Stephanie just said, Tom, can you elaborate on the emotions that were stirred in you that made you want to take this creative journey to creating the play Wiesenthal in the first place? As I delved into the research, I realized I I really didn't know very much. I knew the cursory information that most of us receive, although I probably had a leg up because my father was a decorated war veteran. He uh, received the uh, Bronze Battle Star. Uh, He liberated uh, one of the Buchenwald camps, and I grew up uh, with the stories of uh, my father's experience in World War II. And so I had a predisposition for, for that story. And then I started to perform. I was quite shocked 
at the extreme reaction the audience had. I was uh, amazed that not only Jewish audiences, but all audiences were so very hungry for this story. When I opened up Wiesenthal off-Broadway in 2014, I was worried that perhaps we had, as a society, moved past. We had learned the subjects. Uh, We had understood the lessons that needed to be learned from the Holocaust. And I was shocked, of course, as many of us have been over the past, whatever, eight years, that what Simon called the human savage is alive and well in our society. Simon's mission was to teach humanity who they really are. And unless they know that they have the potential, every one of us has the human savage within us. Unless we can identify it in ourselves, we have precious little chance of accurately identifying it in others. Tell us about one or two of the major creative decisions you had to make and how you were going to frame this story and bring it to life on stage. When I was doing my research, I had to really delve into the specifics of the Holocaust. And I had to watch a lot of footage. And thank God the footage exists, because if I described it to you and you had never seen it, you wouldn't believe it. And at one point, I was watching a documentary, and it wasn't even footage. It was just a story that a survivor told. And I won't even share it with you, because it was so awful that I realized, sitting in the movie theater, actually, And I realized that 10 minutes had gone by and I hadn't heard a word because I was in shock. And that was a great lesson to learn for a playwright because I realized, although I couldn't, you know, shortchange the horrors of the Holocaust, I could not share stories that were so very awful that I would turn off the ears of the audience. Because there's only so much a human being can take before they shut down. The trick is in how you tell it. So that was one artistic decision that I made that really worked out in my favor and in the favor of the audiences. Wiesenthal was an amateur stand-up comedian before the war. He understood how to hold an audience. He was a very sophisticated man. And as they say, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And that was his magic. That was Simon's magic. And I'm happy to say, considering I've done 600 performances and we're doing very well, I have been able to capture that sense of humor that Simon had. And I've been able to utilize his formula of keeping the audience engaged by keeping them entertained. And uh, audiences walk out of the theater uplifted, smiling, and thoughtful, but they do not walk out of the theater, for the most part, weeping and feeling down and depressed. It's the opposite of that. Um, I know Invisible Theater always likes to include a community component to what they do and to invite people from the outside community to contribute and to spark ideas together. Can you tell us something, Rabbi Stephanie, about how Wiesenthal is going to include the community at large? There will be students from all over Tucson will be participating, and it's intergenerational, which is what something Sue's really loves to do. There will be Holocaust survivors there. It feels like the whole community can come together and be present, and that's something that is, I think, very significant. 
certainly one of the issues that he responded to so well was he didn't just focus on Jews. He focused on, you know, the whole community. And certainly, especially with teenagers, there's so much happening in the LGBTQ community. So I feel like that's also present, and it's very present for him, too. That's the kind of intergenerational dialogue we'll be able to have, too, with with some of the survivors there. Tom Dugan, I have a last question for you. You say you've now done over 600 performances of Wiesenthal. Can you identify a way that playing this role and being attached to this story has changed you as a person? I've become an advocate for tolerance. I uh, I was raised Catholic, and I am married to my wife, Amy, who's Jewish, and my two sons, Eli and Miles, are Jewish. And now they are facing anti-Semitism in college. I don't know. I've been prepared for this eventuality for years because I've been living the life, you know, vicariously of an advocate for tolerance. And since my children were babies, they know that that's what daddy does for a living. Daddy's about tolerance. That's in their blood. That's the thing I'm proudest of. I saw recently Ken Burns' documentary about the Holocaust, which was... um, startling, uh, because the main information that I took away from it was the extreme apathy of the United States citizenry regarding the Holocaust and what was happening. Even though Americans knew what was going on, they still didn't want to save anyone. They still didn't want anyone coming to their shores. And then they looked at the Jewish community at that time, and they were also apathetic. They distanced themselves from European Jews And they also didn't want to help. And that was the formula that led to almost total destruction of the Jewish people in Europe. I am so proud to have done and continue to do the smallest part towards the continued enlightenment of the American people, towards what humanity is capable of and how they need to watch out for the signs of when it's coming for us again. Thanks to Rabbi Stephanie Aaron and actor and playwright Tom Dugan. Invisible Theater presents Tom Dugan in Wiesenthal at the Berger Performing Arts Center for two performances, this Saturday and Sunday, January 14th and 15th. This is made possible with support from the Tucson Jewish Community Center and the Elizabeth and Milton Kahn Philanthropic Fund. Ticket information and details about COVID safety protocols are available at invisibletheater.com. Matthew Whitaker, a 21-year-old pianist from Hackensack, New Jersey, has been getting a lot of positive critical attention recently. He's on his way to Tucson with his quintet for a concert on Sunday as part of the Tucson Jazz Festival. Whitaker is a multi-instrumentalist with a natural talent for learning and composing music. It emerged around the age of three, and it was made all the more remarkable because Whitaker was born blind. He's recorded three albums so far, with more on the way, as you'll hear in this interview. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank y'all for letting us be the first show of, of, of our tour. Like, this is amazing. Like, thank y'all for letting us start here in Tucson. <laughs> but um, I'm going to be doing a lot of styles of music, um, some stuff from my, from my albums, and also we're going to be doing a bit of a surprise towards the end of the show. Y'all got to come out. <laughs> Are these guys that you've played with for a while now? Is your quintet a unit that originated in Jersey? Everyone in my group is from New York, with the exception of, of, of one. He's from Cuba. 
Um, but everyone else is from New York. And um, some of the guys I've been since 2018. It, it's always a fun time playing with these guys, so I, I can't wait to play with them again and also, you know, play for y'all, you know? I heard you do a cover on stage with your quintet of uh, Come Together by the Beatles. Oh, yeah. I thought that was pretty inventive. What was your approach Thank with you. that tune? What what inspired you to, to add that to your uh, vocabulary? That's a good question. I haven't put it in a while, actually. Um, yeah, um, to be honest, um, I heard Doc's version and I was like, okay. The, the more times you play it, the more ideas that we may come up with and stuff. So so it, it, it's really just a matter of just arranging a little bit and then just playing it a few times and just figuring out stuff to do on the spot, which then get, in, get thrown in there <laughs> as part of the arrangement. So now when we do it, it's completely different. Yeah, because it's got an R&B groove going underneath, <laughs> and then you've taken yeah. the vocals, the lead guitar, the driving melody, and combined all those things into something else that you're doing on the organ. Mm-hmm. A lot of people get hung up on come together with that, you know, the drum. Yep, yep. right now, what kind of music is calling to you the most? I wonder if you find yourself moving in a certain direction at this time. Good question. Um, I would say more into the orchestral type stuff, especially with some of the projects that I've done recently and stuff that's coming up pretty soon. Uh, I hope to venture into some more orchestral instrumentation and, and, you know, getting that um, experience in there. And I'm excited for, um, for what's coming up pretty soon. Some things I can't say currently right now, but <laughs> okay. um, everything's coming up pretty soon, so just stay tuned. It sounds like you're not afraid of adding more components. It seems like you embrace yeah. the idea of, of, some might say, complicating the music in a way. Some might think that you might want to strip it down to a trio or even solo. I've gotten that report, but I'm like, okay, y'all want me to do that, but what do I want to do? The Matthew Whitaker Quintet will perform Sunday, January 15th at the Fox Tucson Theater. It's part of the 2023 Tucson Jazz Festival. TucsonJazzFestival.org has all the details. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This is a production of AZPM. Music by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. 
I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.